Welcome to Shakespeare's Pants, the podcast that explores the ins and outs of English domestic activity during the life and times of William Shakespeare. My name is Angela and I'm a Shakespearean, which is a strange thing to do with one's life. But in my attempt to be useful for a change, I'm using my otherwise pointless superpower to make history and literature come together for you, my lovely listeners. And so without further ado, here is my podcast, Shakespeare's Pants. Shakespeare's Pants. In this episode of Shakespeare's Pants, I'll be plumbing lowly depths discussing the processes and paraphernalia around going to the loo across the different sorts or what we might call classes of people and I'll try to get to the bottom of whether or not bodily functions were considered amusing for Shakespeare and his contemporaries. So let's do it with episode three of Shakespeare's Pants Evacuating. It seems a shame but inevitable to move from cleaning to pooing. But defecation and its related activity, including attitudes towards it, is an important indication of pre-enlightenment conceptualizations of privacy. Let's learn more from Dr Pete Smith from Nottingham Trent University. In the, re- the remains of Hales Abbey, there is intact the monk's latrine built over a flowing waterway, which is still there. So we know that there was quite high tech crapping, as it were, in the period. In the palaces, there would have been the use of commodes. Private spaces for undertaking one's evacuations weren't really the norm. You might have a privy chamber if you're the king, or a house of easement if you're noble. The latrines at Hales Abbey that Pete mentioned earlier were public, and there weren't retiring rooms or spaces one went to in order to be alone in middling households, let alone those of lower sorts. I'm sure many a Shakespeare student will be ready to point out that people had closets, However, closets like Gertrude's in Hamlet were not bedchambers or indeed private spaces at all. They were, in fact, not dissimilar to studies or offices, a place for prayer or paperwork, really. Remember John Russell's manual about being a good servant from episode one? Well, he also specifies how to be of service to one's master in the privy. See that the privy house for easement be fair, soothe and clean, and that the boards thereupon be covered with cloth fair and green, and the hall himself, look there no board be seen, thereon a fair cushion, the ordure no man to teen. Look there be blanket, cotton or linen, to wipe the nether end, and ever when he calleth, wait ready and attend basin and ewer, and on your shoulder... A towel, my friend. Having a sweet-smelling clean privy is clearly important, and the recommendation is to pop a cloth, preferably a green one, over the board surrounding the hole, and a cushion over the hole itself to cover the waist. When your master calls, you need to be ready with a blanket, cotton or linen, basically something with which to wipe, and you're supposed to have water ready in a basin and a ewer. There should be a spare towel that the master can wipe his hands on. It seems as though this is all fairly sensible, for upper sorts at least. 
that's pretty high standards, I would have thought, in terms of in terms of u- u- more usual experience, which in a in a house probably of Shakespeare's size would have just been a chamber pot or two. So where did people go if they weren't this wealthy? On the fields, obviously, if you're a farm labourer, you'd go wherever you were. But in the towns, it seems as though you perhaps would have used a chamber pot, used a chamber pot and simply thrown out the window in the morning. Middle classes may well have had something like a kind of cesspit underneath the house. In Christopher Marlowe's play, Edward II, from the late 1580s to early 1590s, the king is captured and placed in the sink of the castle. So this space beneath the house where all the feces and dirt was collected. This is exactly what Pete is talking about here. This dungeon where they keep me is the sink wherein the filth of all the castle falls. And there... In mire and puddle have I stood this ten days' space. By the mid-1600s, the term house of office was in usage, suggesting that a designated space, probably outdoors, was more the norm, certainly for middling and upper sorts, especially if they had gardens, which is why people had chamber pots for nighttime use. It's simpler than trudging outside in your smock in the dark and cold, presumably. Although this sounds rather vulgar, it's curious to think about what people used as wiping implements. Russell mentions a cotton or linen blanket, specifically for the nether end. But given that linen was expensive, most people just used whatever was available, notably scrap, cloth and paper. In fact, Thomas Nash, in his novel The Unfortunate Traveller from 1594, indirectly alluded to the inevitability of naff literature ending up as toilet paper or what he calls a privy token. In 1549, the antiquarian John Bale lamented that historical manuscripts in the libraries of large properties, especially Catholic texts post the Reformation, were being destroyed and even used for unsavoury purposes. A great number of them which purchased those superstitious mansions reserved of those library books, some to serve their jakes. Most famously or infamously, the French satirist François Rabelais, in the first book of his Gargantua and Pantagruel series from the mid-16th century, dedicates a great portion of a chapter to the various wiping implements. Now, obviously, this is a comic send-up, but it must be at some point based in some kind of reality. Chapter 13, how Gargantua's wonderful understanding became known to his father, Grangousier, uh, by the invention of wipe breach. So he talks about the various things that he's wiped his bum on. I did wipe me with a gentlewoman's velvet mask and found it to be good. For the softness of the silk was very voluptuous and pleasant to my fundament. Another time with one of their hoods and like manner that was comfortable, that's another time with a lady's neckerchief. And after that, I wiped me with some ear pieces of hers made of crimson satin. But there was such a number of golden spangles in them, turdy round things that Pox taken, that they fetched away all the skin of my tail with a vengeance. And then he goes on, he uses various herbs, he uses gourd leaves, beetroot, vine tree, wool blade, with mercury, pursley, nettles, comfrey, arras hangings, green, green carpet, Tablecloth, napkin, handkerchief, combing cloth. And then he says he uses paper, 
but he doesn't like that. Who his foul tail with paper wipes shall at his bollocks leave some chips, he says. So the list continues for a while, and the best thing he comes up with is the neck of a goose. <laughs> so much for the practicalities. I'm curious about attitudes and assumptions now. For instance, was all this something people treated as commonplace, as an annoyance, or was it all actually a bit amusing? First of all, let's consider the moral dimension. Material culture historian Dr Tara Hamling draws attention to the connection between prayer and routine and the Protestant emphasis on the inevitability of death. People were encouraged to think about death all the time. They were encouraged to think about the way that the body was aging and would eventually die and decay, but that, that was then liberating because that then liberated the soul for the afterlife. The idea was that you, you focused and you meditated on death during life. There's a phrase, memento mori, remember you must die, that you see a lot in the visual and material culture of the period. So objects could really help with prompting remembrance. If you think about it, when are you most at liberty to? think about things. It's when you're kind of doing the mundane, the ordinary things in your daily routine. So Protestant writers would encourage you to think about bodily functions in relation to memento mori. In 2017, Tara and Catherine Richardson published their fascinating look at domestic life in the period called A Day at Home in Early Modern England. Tara spoke to me about an especially curious object that features in the book. So in our book, we feature a chamber pot um, that has an inscription written around it that, that reads, uh, Earth I am, it is most true, disdain me not, for so are you. So it's really playing on its materiality. It's, it's made from earthenware, earth I am, but it's also encouraging you to think about the fact that, you know, you are, you will return to earth yourself and therefore to think about your mortality and to think about how that, you know, ultimately, if you're a good person and you're one of the elect that's predestined to go to heaven, you will have a very uh, fruitful and, and happy afterlife. Grotesque as it may seem, the humour of this connection by way of spirituality was not lost on courtier and poet John Harrington, inventor of the first English flushing toilet. He elaborates on this and other toilet-related matter in his book The Metamorphoses of Ajax from 1596. Any kind of toilet facility, or let's face it, hole, was known as a jakes or Ajax. Harrington conflates religion, sex and learning, amongst other things, with defecation. In this passage, he calls being on a jakes a form of devotion. For I, happening to demand of a dear friend of mine, concerning a great companion of his, whether he were religious or no, and namely if he used to pray, he told me that to his remembrance he never heard him ask anything of God, nor thank God for anything, except it were at a jake's. He heard him say he thanked God he had had a good stool. Thus, you see, a good stool might move as great devotion in some men as a bad sermon. And sure it suits very well that quorum Deus est venter, eorum templum sit cloaca, he that makes his belly his god, I would have him make a jake's his chapel. Although this is tongue-in-cheek, as it were, 
The connection between defecating and godliness was subliminal in early modern post-Reformation culture because of the interconnecting theme of death. Dr. Pete Smith explains the relationship between death and evacuating really well. We're talking about an agrarian economy where Shakespeare's family, even they are quite urbanised, they're in a little town strapped upon Avon, but would have had much, much closer relationship to the earth. Technology and urbanisation have both separated human populations from the natural world uh, and introduced things like, you know, the idea of, of self as being something which needs to be clean and deodorised, perfumed and pomaded. But it's also related, I think, from the separation of the living from the dead and that the dead are often seen, particularly in a time of plague, are seen to be corrupt and therefore need to be, you know, hugger-mugger. They need to be, as it were, buried very, very quickly. And again, that's, that's, that's become more intense the more modern it is because the undertaker comes around, takes away the corpse and, and the family doesn't do anything to the corpse. You know, and some cultures, there's still ritual washing and so on and so forth. But, but in terms of, you know, sort of Western culture, uh, the sooner we can get rid of the corpse, the better, really. And, and part of that fear of death and fear of corruption and fear of of excrement is is all wrapped up with a sort of horror about our own pristine selves. This kind of horror about our own bodies and corruption was less prominent in the early modern period, outside of, as Pete has suggested, plague. What an interesting notion that disease makes us wary and perhaps less likely to want to talk about, let alone engage with, bodily excretions, and by extension, mortality. The implications of not having private toilet spaces meant that, in real terms, defecating was much more normalised, natural and unshameful than it seems to be today. Samuel Pepys, the mid-17th century diarist, was remarkably explicit about his toilet activities. On a couple of occasions, he finds himself without a chamber pot in the night. In this instance, he was staying at an inn and recalled, In the night I was mightily troubled with a looseness, I suppose from some fresh damp linen that I put on this night, and feeling for a chamber pot there was none. I having called the maid up out of her bed, she had forgot, I suppose, to put one there. So I was forced in this strange house to rise and shit in the chimney twice. Another time, Pepys wrote, I waked in the morning about six o'clock, and my wife not come to bed. I lacked a pot, but there was none, and bitter cold, so was forced to rise and piss in the chimney, and to bed again. Going in the chimney was evidently not uncommon, because it comes up in Henry IV Part One when carriers are exchanging grumbles about the state of an inn at Rochester. Why, they will allow us ne'er a Jordan, and then we leak in your chimney, and your chamber lie breeds fleas like a loach. The carrier complains that for want of a Jordan, or chamber pot, he was obliged to urinate in the chimney, which, he says, attracts fleas. Chamber lie was a common term for urine, which was collected and used for bleaching and leather tanning, for example. Not only was going to the loo worthy of documenting, but, and I think more commonly, what came out was of great interest, especially in medical terms. 
John Hall, physician and son-in-law to Shakespeare, almost always noted the number and consistency of his patients' stools and invariably prescribed enemas for anything from stomach ache and constipation to ulcers and even fever. And faeces itself featured in some of the remedies he used, including the droppings of swallows, dogs and pheasants. The ability to defecate or purge was a fundamental process in humoral pathology because it signified that the body was literally excreting what it didn't require and, by extension, maintaining a healthy humoral balance. An object used to administer enemas was found on the Mary Rose ship. This is Dr Hannah Lilly. It appears kind of like a pipe that you would play, for example. It's very similar in its appearance and made of wood, but at the bottom, it's got the remnants of some leather on it. And so when it was first excavated in the 1980s, people just thought it was a musical instrument, which is understandable because it does look like one. But then they noticed the um, leather at the bottom and then to their horror discovered it was actually an enema pipe so um, it would have had a kind of sack attached to it underneath and this could have been filled with medicine in order to kind of administer medicine rectally. Medical practice encompassed the arts of piss and poo gazing. Observing urine known as uroscopy was a common way of diagnosing illness and so too was examining the colour, consistency and size of stools. Physician Thomas Cogan offered up this rhyme as a way of diagnosing faeces. Filthy dung and fecks most vile, many colours in one stool be evil. The dregs of nature's food... When they be diverse colours made, the signs be never good. If the siege be likened to the meat, new drawn into the maw, or fleeting with phleam and bubbles great, the body is windy and raw. The yellow doth from collar come, the green is burned a dust, the black and leady be deadly signs, the flesh will turn to dust. The excrement that is in the Jake's cast, if it have oil or fat, consumption of the body begin. The chiefest sign is that the privy, soft, well compact, made in the accustomed time, is ever good, and the hard is ill, and thus I end my rhyme. Basically, when you look into your jakes, you want to be seeing soft and dense turds instead of hard ones. And speaking of the jakes, all of these cesspits, sinks and pots obviously had to be emptied. In Henry IV Part Two, Falstaff instructs the somewhat put-upon servant Francis to Empty the Jordan! It's common knowledge that this would have been emptied into the cesspits and even out of windows. But who cleaned up that mess? The night soilmen, or also known as the gong farmers or the dung farmers, who came round with horse and cart and would go through your house with buckets and simply take it out and take it down to the River Thames and dump it. Let's hear from Dr Sarah Reid from Loughborough University. It was an expensive business getting your privy emptied and they used to talk about how, how wealthy the night soil men were because 
obviously nobody wanted to do that job. But when you read about it, they're, they're wheeling the wheelbarrows through your house to the privy, emptying it all, and then wheeling it back through. It's just like, oh dear. <laughs> Samuel Pepys also took great interest in the soil men, writing that... So from thence, home, where my house of office was emptying, and I find they will do it with much more cleanness than I expected. I went up and down among them a good while. Before Pepys, Shakespeare was perhaps less kind to the muck-clearers, admittedly through the mouths of his aristocratic characters. Richard, Duke of Gloucester in Henry VI, Part One, is outraged at the servants, or warders, who refused to open the gates of the Tower of London. Whose will stands but mine? There's none protector of the realm but I. Break up the gates, I'll be your warrant eyes. Shall I be flouted thus by dunghill grooms? Richard's attitude towards the servants is that they attend to dung, possibly horse dung, but it's not very clear. But as dunghill grooms, they are categorically inferior and ought not dare to oppose him. Later in Henry VI, Part Two, Richard addresses someone as Base, dunghill villain and mechanical. Mechanical is the term used for labourers, the lower sorts. One might infer that Richard perceives all lower sorts as dung dealers. Unsurprisingly, Richard is meant to be. Kind of a jerk. Circling back to my question about how funny all of this actually was, I suppose I'm harking back to Rabelais and Harrington, for example, mocking arse-wiping and defecating, respectively. Shakespeare, or at least his audiences, seemed to enjoy references to posteriors. There's a joke about bottoms being different shapes and sizes in All's Well That Ends Well. It is like a barber's chair that fits all buttocks. The pin buttock, the quatch buttock, the brawn buttock, or any buttock. My absolute favourite ass gag in Shakespeare's repertoire comes by way of the ne'er-do-well pimp Pompey in Measure for Measure, who has the magnificent surname Bum. Playwright Thomas Middleton had a character called Shortyard who boasts about urinating in one of London's public water cisterns or conduits. In this case, he's referring to the standard which was in Cheapside. Sometimes I carry my water all London over, only to deliver it proudly at the standard. And do I pass altogether unnoted, think you? No. A man can no sooner peep out his head, but there's a bow bent at him out of some watchtower or other. Shortyard obviously knows that he's doing something naughty and is, by extension, funny in a gross way. It's documented that on celebratory occasions, notably royal pageants, some of the conduits ran with wine for the enjoyment of the public. I don't think anyone would take kindly to someone pissing into it, therefore. This slightly icky and naughty aspect of evacuating intrigues me because it forms the basis of so much early modern humour. People pee and fart and are generally gassy, and they find it all terribly amusing. There's a very interesting crossover between medical discourse and the idea of the involuntary body exp bodily expulsion. 
it's uh, it's clearly a taboo. It's clearly something which is beyond this idea of courtliness and manners and etiquette, where you simply cannot control yourself. And perhaps most famously in Shakespeare's lifetime, in 1607, is Sir Henry Ludlow, who comes into the House of Commons and, um, and just lets one go. And there's a whole poem <laughs> called The Fart Censured in the Parliament House about Ludlow cracking one off in, the, in a debate. And it's a poem which circulates in manuscript and people are adding more and more sort of fart gags to it. It gets longer and longer and longer. Shakespeare's works are also peppered with references to bottoms, cracks and farts and other bodily emissions. Of course, that's writ large in the name Jakes in As You Like It, which is, you know, a whole debate about um, Jakes talks about how he will purge the world, how he will blow wind upon the world to purge it and clean it and so forth. There's a whole load of scatological vocabulary around uh, that character. And it's no accident. He's not called Jaques, he's called Jakes. So it, it seems to me that Shakespeare's onto, onto a fart gag winner here. I must have liberty with all. As large a charter as the wind, to blow on whom I please. Remember Harrington and the Ajax? Pete also argues that this is the basis of a gag in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. And Thersites talks about how Ajax is so frightened of uh, fighting with Hector that he's walking up and down the field looking for himself. In other words, he needs, he's looking for a Jakes because he needs a crap because he's so... Frightened. Ajax goes up and down the field asking for himself. He must fight singly tomorrow with Hector and is so prophetically proud of an heroical cudgeling that he raves in saying nothing. In The Merry Wives of Windsor again, Falstaff has to disguise himself as the fat lady of Brentford or the witch of Brentford. And this is a terrific reference to a fictional woman named Gillian of Brentford, first appearing in a poem by Robert Copeland printed in 1563. The story became fairly ubiquitous in low literature and even on stage. The essential plot is that the widow, Gillian of Brentford, calls a curate to her home in order to make a will in which she bequeaths 26 and a half farts to people who annoyed her the half a fart being reserved for the curate, against whom she'd clearly taken a dislike. The cantankerous farting old lady is very comically referenced in The Merry Wives of Windsor, and that it should be Falstaff who impersonates her merely solidifies the arguably deserved humiliation heaped upon the lusty, covetous old knight. No matter who you are, a fart anecdote is always worth a chuckle. It seems to me that Elizabethan and early Jacobean English folks of all sorts weren't really ashamed of their bodily functions. Everyone pooed and peed, with or without witnesses, but not everyone had access to privies. I'm convinced that there was less prudery about bottoms and faeces than perhaps we might be ready to acknowledge today. And I don't know what a pinch buttocks is, but I feel as though I want one. So grab your literary trash, aim for the chimney, and don't forget to chuck out that waste so it doesn't start breeding flies. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare's Pants. Tune in next time to learn all about sex in early modern England. 
In this episode, you heard from Dr. Pete Smith, Dr. Tara Hamling, Dr. Hannah Lilly, Dr. Sarah Reed, and me, Dr. Adna Chohan. You also heard the voices of Donald Craigie, Neil Hancock, Richard Bunn, and Charlie Clee. Thank you very much for listening to Shakespeare's Pants. Adieu! Shakespeare's Pants.